we're starting a study in the book of Colossians. So we'll do a, an introduction, kind of a, a brief one, just kind of, uh, kind of set in the background for the book just so we can kind of have an understanding of why Paul is writing and what he's dealing with. Um, the epistle to the Colossians, just in case, because we don't want to ever take anything for granted. Sometimes people who are new to the faith don't know this, but when you study an epistle, that just means it's a letter. Uh, and so Paul um, writes a letter to the Colossians that was the people that were living in Colossae. Um, and so this letter was to be read to them and read to those in the church in Laodicea. Uh, Paul is the author. Uh, most of the time in his epistles, you can tell he's the author because he mentions his name first. And that was kind of common back in those days. When you relied on a letter, you wouldn't sign it at the end. You would sign it in the beginning kind of a thing. So Colossians is written around somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. Uh, Paul was a prisoner in Rome when he wrote this. So we have what we call the prison epistles, and Colossians is one of them. Colossae was a city in uh, Pergia uh, in the Roman province of Asia, which is part of modern Turkey. Uh, it was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, if you ever look in those maps in the back of your Bible. Um, it's in the region uh, of the seven churches that are listed there in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. Um, it was uh, next to a river called the Lycus River and close to the Lycus Valley. Um, it was a mixed population of Jews and Gentiles. And of course, when we read that letter to the church in uh, Colossae, uh, it is important to keep in mind who he's writing to. And in this instance, it's a mixed population, so that helps us in our understanding of what's being said. Uh, like a lot of churches, um, they, there was some heresy that had uh, kind of moved in. It was plaguing the church. And so Paul does write to deal with, uh, to deal with whatever that heresy was. Um, the heresy that they were dealing with was kind of a combination of legalism from the Jewish side of things and pagan mysticism. The church at Colossae uh, started during Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus, but he wasn't the founder. Um, Epaphras was the one who started that church. Uh, it's believed that he was saved, that Epaphras was saved during a visit to Ephesus, and that he then ended up starting the church uh, in Colossae when he went back home. So several years after the Colossian church was founded, that's when uh, heresy began to kind of rear its ugly head and begin to move into the church. Um, it's, it was not necessarily one particular thing. It was a kind of a mixed bag of things. Uh, Basically, what we would call Gnosticism. Gnosticism kind of a, a, has a lot of different looks to it. Um, it's kind of a, I guess you call it a mystery religion, a lot of mystical things that go on with it. And so there's a lot of aspects of it that you might have in one place but not in another, but it's all kind of under that umbrella. But the basic idea is that God is good, but that matter is evil. So anything physical is evil. Um, and that was uh, used by some individuals as a way to, uh, to get away with sin. It was also used by some people as a way to promote legalism. Uh, the way that would work, um, if you wanted to, to promote legalism, uh, you would say that because God is good and everything physical is evil, therefore you can't have anything to do with anything that is physical. Um, you want to make sure you are detached from as many things as possible, um, that you didn't get caught up in in uh, any kind of materialism or anything that looks like materialism because it's all bad. It's almost like saying you're not even allowed to have any fun um, because you just you had to be, you know, just live a life where you were kind of saying no to everything. On the other hand, though, there are those who are saying that because God is good and evil and matter is evil, there's nothing you can do, so you might as well just enjoy it. You know, just, uh, in fact, some would even take it a step further and say, they, because we're, they would kind of emphasize the spiritual aspect of man and then say that whatever we did physically didn't matter. That you could sin uh, without uh, any restraint because it had no effect on the spiritual aspect of your life uh, and that the two never touched each other and that you were fine. So a lot of things would come out of that or be stressed by uh, different people based on what it was they were kind of into, uh, to say the least. So again, God is good, matter is evil. Um, uh, Jesus uh, himself was um, merely uh, an emanation of God or descending from God so that he was less than God. He was not God himself. So there's a denial of the divinity of Christ. There's a denial of the Trinity. Um, 
we have something similar in our day, uh, a, a, a denomination, I guess, that's called One Pentecostal, Pentecostalism. So if you're familiar with T.D. Jakes, that's what he is. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, he doesn't believe that Jesus is divine. Uh, you may not always know that watching his, his shows or his preaching, but that's, where he, that's, what, that's what he believes. That's his denomination. Um, it used to be in his doctrinal statement on his website for his church, but they changed that um, so they could have a greater appeal to people, which probably is a way to get more money. But anyway... Um, but you, so you do have individuals who do call themselves Christians who do deny the divinity of Christ. It's not just liberals. It, would, it might be those that are involved in that. But again, the idea is that Jesus was kind of an emanation of God, so he really wasn't God. Um, and they, they also didn't believe he was actually really human. You know, he was just something else kind of a thing. Um, because again, he couldn't be human because if he was, all physical matter is evil. And so now you've got a problem if, he, if he's that. Um, they also believed that there was a secret higher knowledge that was above the scripture. Um, and the way that you would get that would be by special enlightenment. And only a few special people could receive that. Um, so in a church setting, uh, they would believe that some people were kind of higher up the ladder. They were more spiritual than others because they received special revelation and maybe one day you can too uh, if you read first john he kind of talks about that um, that kind of thing because oftentimes those who are in that special group receiving revelation from god supposedly they would treat others very poorly like you were their servants you were below them uh kind of a thing is kind of what would kind of come out of that so they did believe in a secret knowledge again that was only revealed to certain ones and then everyone else was dependent upon them to get that information from them uh, whenever they saw fit to, uh, um, to, to give it out. And it did have information that had to do with not only knowing God better, but maybe even salvation. Uh, so that they were really uh, trying to find ways to, really to control people um, in that sense. Also, along with that, though, as I already mentioned, there was kind of an embracing of, of Jewish legalism. Uh, so within that group, you would have some Jews who would also push the necessity of circumcision. Uh, if you weren't circumcised as a Jew or even as a Gentile, you could not be saved because you weren't fully in compliance with what God had said. Um, they believed that it was necessary to observe various of the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament. So you had to follow dietary laws, festivals, Sabbaths, those types of things. Uh, and then, of course, along with that was a real rigid asceticism, and that's the idea of living as sparsely as possible. Um, so if you have a couch in your house, I might be more spiritual than you because I have chairs that have no cushions. All right? But then someone else might be more spiritual than me because they have a stool that has no arms and back. And that's, that's, that would be literally how people would, would view that. Um, if you have a bed then I would be more spiritual than you because I sleep on a mat on the floor and that, that kind of thing. Uh, they didn't always like brag about it in that way, but that would be the message that people would give out. And so whenever, again, you have a, a spiritual community, you know, whenever uh, sin kind of rears its ugly head, uh, oftentimes because of our pride, either wanting to be recognized, wanting to be special, uh, wanting that pat on the back, wanting people to admire us, then we, we move into these kinds of areas. And normally what we do is we move into areas that we are the most comfortable with. So if you're the kind of individual who's already fairly disciplined, then asceticism would be very appealing to you because that's easy for you. And everyone else is suffering. Oh my, I can't sleep on the floor. You know, I, my back is sore. You go, well, if you love the Lord, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then those who were in the, on the other side of things who were maybe more emotional uh, and what have you, they would you know, really gravitate to that. And so the same kind of things that we can have today. Uh, that's why we always want to go back to the Bible. What does the scripture say? We need to study what it says. Make sure we have a good understanding of what it says uh, to evaluate. So that was the kinds of things that were affecting the church. And so that's what prompted Paul uh, to write the letter to him. As I already mentioned, he wrote the uh, letter from prison when he was in Rome. And uh, so Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians are considered the... Uh, um, uh, prison epistles. So Paul obviously wrote the letter to warn the Colossians against the heresy that they were facing. Uh, he sent the letter to them with uh, 
uh, Tychicus, who was accompanying the runaway slave Onesimus. Remember Onesimus uh, was a runaway slave, became a believer, and Paul told him he needed to go back to his master, who was Philemon. And so Philemon is going with uh, Tychicus and going back to um, Colossae for this whole thing to, uh, to be kind of wrapped up. In the book of Colossians, uh, it does center on several teachings, which, which are key areas of theology, again, to combat um, what was going on there. So you have several things that talk about the deity of Christ, uh, several things that talk about our being reconciled to God. Uh, that would be important because that would then eliminate this idea that certain people uh, have a special relationship to God and others don't. Right? Everyone who's a believer has been reconciled to God. We've all been redeemed. Uh, so it deals with reconciliation, redemption, election, definitely forgiveness, and then also the nature of the church. So all those things are going to be coming out in the book of Colossians as we begin to move our way through it. So looking at verses 1 and 2, it begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul begins uh, by not only stating his name because he's the author of the letter, but also that he is an apostle by the will of God. Uh, again, we need to make sure that we remember or that we recognize that I know that in some churches there are individuals who call themselves apostles. Um, that would be a, I'm not going to say it's sinful, but it's not a good thing to do. Um, an apostle is a, a, a particular individual. It's an office in the church. Even though the word just means one who's sent. And that is what the word means. Uh, the way that it's used in the Bible most often uh, is dealing with an individual who has a particular office. It's an office of great authority. Those individuals were appointed by God. Um, they laid the foundation for the church. Everything we believe, um, everything we've built on in the church was laid by the apostles, by what Paul wrote and Peter wrote. Um, and so, again, that's the scripture. So we always go back to the scripture. Uh, you had to be basically qualified to serve at, or to be appointed as an apostle. Um, and we'll get into that again one day. Um, we've covered that before. But the main thing is, you know, you had to, be, you had to see uh, the risen Christ, what Paul did, you know, after he uh, became a believer, uh, after, the, um, after his blindness was healed. There was a time where he was with Christ, I believe, in the wilderness when he was being discipled by God, and a lot of things along with that. So he was, um, he was definitely an apostle. So that did mean then that if there was any kind of a uh, disagreement, Paul's word is final. There's no appeal. That's it. Um, and uh, um, so that would carry with it a great deal of, of responsibility uh, with it, to say the least. So in churches today, you know, the pastor does have authority, but it's not a situation where his authority is one that there's a disagreement when the pastor speaks, that's it. It's not that way. Now, hopefully, he's, he's going to teach what the scripture says. So that's it, if that's what the scripture says. But it's not it, because the pastor says that. Um, you know, that's what my job is, is not to develop my theology, it's to develop the, my theology from scripture and to teach the scripture, and the authority, whatever authority I may have in the life of a person comes from the word of God. So I can give instruction to an individual on marriage. I can command a believer to never marry a non-believer because that's what the scripture says. But I cannot command a believer as to who to marry. I can't tell Scott, you need to marry, you need to marry Mary. I don't have, I don't have the, the authority to do that. Um, if they're both believers, um, I, I, you know, I can ask questions and I can do marriage counseling and all the rest, but I don't have the authority to do that. So I'm, I would be overstepping my bounds. Um, I can tell a, a man and woman who are counseling that they are forbidden to, to divorce. They may still divorce, but I can tell them that they're forbidden to do that. I can say if you divorce, you are, you're disobeying God. Not that I'm God, but that's what the scripture teaches. Um, they may still do that and we, and we deal with whatever the fallout is from that, depending on the situation. Uh, but again, so that's where the authority comes from. And so we want to make sure that we recognize that there is a legitimate authority for the pastor, but there's a lot of authority also that's not legitimate. Yes, Eileen? Does the Pope like that? Does he like the head? Is that the way they see him? No, the way, no, they actually see him being much stronger 
they actually believe that the Pope is the physical representation of Jesus Christ on earth. So in a sense, now they've kind of changed how they've said some things. It used to be that whenever the Pope speaks on anything, he was infallible. Now the way they say it is that whenever he speaks on spiritual matters, you know, they would say it in different ways that he is infallible. But they don't really push the infallibility of the Pope too much just in general. Um, but I know back in the 60s and 70s, maybe before then, but, but, um, but that was kind of a big deal. Uh, I think it was, uh, it's, it's Pope Pius X, I believe, that I, I read this, that where he, made, he made the statement that uh, the Pope is not just the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ. So, you know, that's kind of a strong term. So yeah, that, so that would be a little different uh, in that he's, he's absolute. He would be similar in a sense to an apostle in the Catholic Church because he establishes doctrine. You know, all those, when he speaks on doctrine, that's it, you know. Um, so, for example, what we're aware of, and David, this has been going on now for at least 30 years, maybe more, uh, but there's a small group within Catholicism, they, they're, they're trying to get um, Mary officially recognized as co-redeemer with Jesus. Okay, that's not happened yet. Um, so, one day, if, some, some say, think it may be when, but if a pope ever says that or declares that, then that will become official Catholic doctrine and is unquestionable. No one can question it uh, because he would be speaking in that, in that office and that would be it. Um, so now, partly because of that, uh, a lot have hesitated just because of things surrounding that issue because it's a pretty bold statement to make that. Uh, they, they've already gone as far as to say that when Jesus suffered, Mary suffered with him. Because, and again, it's always connected to the fact that Mary is his mother. And so they would say, well, like any mother would suffer when her son suffered. The suffering is real. Well, no one's denying the suffering is real. But the question is, is was her suffering to the degree that her suffering was paying for sins? Of course, all Protestants would say no, but within, the, within Catholic circles, there are certain ones who say, trying to make the case that she did. And part of that goes back to the belief that, uh, again, they're teaching that she was sinless. Now, we know she wasn't sinless, but they teach that she was sinless. They also teach that she was always a virgin. And she died, you know, she died a virgin uh, and died sinless. And so you put all those things together, it's not really that far of a stretch to say that she also, with Christ, redeemed mankind. Um, so I do expect that to be said one day, but I, I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to say the next pope, or the, I have no idea. I just know that that movement's never lost any ground. But again, the main thing is the pope, when he does, when that is said, that is unquestioned uh, within the Catholic Church. So, uh, yeah, we don't have a, we don't have a pope. <laughs> uh, to say the least. Huh? Uh, what they do with that is they say the Greek word uh, that's used there, it has a secondary meaning, which could mean cousin, which is technically correct, even though it's not used that way. And so they say that um, those were his cousins, not his brothers. That's how they get it. That's how they get around that. So it's, it's, it's wrong, but that's how they do that. Yeah. Okay, um, let's see, where are we? Uh, okay, so back to uh, verses one and two. So Paul, an apostle. So um, basically when it comes to apostle, uh, let me read to you some words by uh, one commentator. He said the word apostolos, uh, that's the Greek version, literally means one who was sent out. Paul's right to speak is that he has been sent out by God to be his ambassador to the Gentiles. Moreover, he is an apostle by the will of God. That office is not something which he has earned or achieved. It is something which has been given to him uh, by God. So even though Paul was the, uh, is considered the apostle to the Gentiles, that did not mean he never ministered to Jews, because he did, like he often did. And normally when he would go into a city, the first place he would go would be a synagogue. And then he would turn all his attentions to Gentiles. So it would be primarily that, and that's, that was his target. Peter, his primary target was Jews. Didn't mean he never spoke to Gentiles, he did. 
but it was primarily towards um, uh, the, the Hebrew people. Um, but that was, that's who Paul is. So again, we need to reemphasize the fact that the word apostle, as Paul is using it, does not merely refer to one who, is a, who has a message to announce, um, but to an appointed representative with an official status who is provided with the credentials of his office. Apostle is also used to describe Jesus Christ, uh, the one that was sent from the Father. So you do see it used in that sense uh, one time. But again, the idea with that is, is the authority of the office. So basically, any city that any apostle went into, if there was a church that was having difficulty, if the apostle then settles the matter uh, doctrinally, that's it. Uh, now, they didn't do it willy-nilly. They weren't running around trying to, you know, wearing special robes and trying to puff themselves up. Um, they were very conservative, in a sense, in the way that they would do and say things. Um, a lot of them weren't as outspoken or spoke as much as Paul did uh, when it came to, to these things. But that's, that's the importance of that. So, again, you do have some churches, actually uh, sometimes quite a few, uh, individuals who, like, like I said, call themselves apostles. Some churches will say they've appointed apostles, and again, they would just say they're just messengers. Um, some people are self-appointed apostles. I think it's just best never to use that term, uh, just because of the weight that it can carry. I want to read you something else, because uh, when you look once again at these two verses, again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, uh, let me just pause there. You know you've heard me say this before. The word saint is just another word for believer. So all believers are saints, period, because it depicts the position we have in Christ. We are those who are justified. When God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see my righteousness. I don't have any. I'm dressed in the righteousness of another, which is Christ. My position in Christ is one who has been um, declared justified um, because of what Christ has done. So I am a saint and you are a saint. We don't normally call ourselves, you know, Saint Bob and Saint Ron and all the rest. Uh, but that is the idea there. So this thing where we know that the Catholic Church does this, uh, where an individual has to perform a miracle and has to be authenticated. Maybe it's two miracles and have to be authenticated and blah, 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 and go through a long thing and then they can be named a saint by the church. Um, that's just not a biblical thing. Um, and, uh, and of course, they venerate their saints, which basically means they do at times worship them. They do pray to them. That's just all that's wrong. Um, but we can rest in the fact that we're saints. Paul just writes this letter to these people at Colossae, and he says, to the saints. So are there just two people there that are saints, or is, you know what's going on? Well, like I said, it's just another term for believers. So we are all saints. So to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, um, and this is uh, what's important where he, he mentions that they are in Christ at Colossae. So a, uh, a commentator from the 1700s wrote this. He says, Christians have two addresses here, one in Colossae and in Christ. A Christian always moves in two spheres. He is in a certain place in this world, but he is also in Christ. He lives in two dimensions. He lives in this world whose duties he does not treat lightly, but above and beyond that, he lives in Christ. In this world, he may move from place to place, but wherever he is, he is in Christ. That is why outward circumstances make little difference to the Christian. His peace and his joy are not dependent on them. That is why he would do any job with all of his heart. It may be menial, unpleasant, painful, and may be far less distinguished than he might expect to have. Its rewards may be small, and its praise even non-existent. Nevertheless, the Christian will do it diligently, uncomplainingly, and cheerfully, for he is in Christ, and does all those things as to the Lord. We are all, on, we are all in our own Colossae, but we are all in Christ, and it is Christ who sets, or at least should set, the tone of our living. So the main thing there with, with that is what he's trying to emphasize there, uh, and, and you'll see this term a lot, um, and it's kind of a good study to do, is just to take the term in Christ and just see how many times it appears in the New Testament and then read all those verses. 
You just see that terminology used over and over again. And the idea is to emphasize our identity with Christ, um, our oneness with Christ, um, and that then should um, uh, not just motivate us, but that determines how we live as Christians, that we're always a Christian. Everything I do, I do as a Christian. Yes? Pastor Paul, what um, particular time frame was this in? Is what in? And was this... Um, when you wrote the letter? That was around 60, 62 AD. So about 30 years after the death of Christ. That was written. So, early on, to say the least. All right, let me, uh, so I'm going to read from um, the Christian Standard Version. One, I like the translation, but number two, my ESV's in the truck. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> All right, so I'll read verses one and two again, and then we'll begin, and then we'll move, begin to move earnestly through uh, the rest of the letter. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So as Paul begins this letter in, in writing to the Colossians, he, be, he begins really on a positive note. He's not doing that because he wants to manipulate them and kind of butter them up because he's going to whack them for the heresy that they're involved in. He really does mean this. We know that Epaphras has already reported back to him about this church. Um, Epaphras has a great love for these individuals. And we know that they have grown. They have a faith uh, that is known by others or other churches or other Christians. Um, just like we sometimes hear about certain things going on with the church and maybe in other countries. It's kind of the idea. We hear their faith. We hear what God is doing. So we know that Paul prays for them. We know that Paul prayed often for um, these churches. He was always concerned about them or concerned for them. It wasn't a concern for them because he was worried um, that they weren't going to make it or they're going to go off the deep end. But it was a concern that they would continue to grow and move forward because he knew uh, that Satan was going to do whatever he could to try to demolish or diminish the church. And he wanted them to be aware um, that there really is this warfare that takes place and they need to be diligent um, in the faith because if they don't uh, remain alert and diligent, they can begin to fall away, uh, even though that's not what they intend to do. And so they, they need to be very much aware of their surroundings and really aware of their own hearts. Remember that um, the greatest danger to us is not the sin of others, it's the sin that's in our own hearts. Uh, and even though we, we can be influenced by others to go astray, uh, normally others don't really have to work that hard. When we go astray, we usually, we're usually volunteering for whatever the reason. Um, because we're just we're susceptible to that and so we have to be diligent as believers uh, and you know truly keep our eyes on the Lord and again just to, as a reminder that's not a complicated thing it's very simple for everyone to be able to do and the main idea is that you know we're in the Word of God daily uh, we are with other believers studying the Word of God worshiping God um, and that we spend time in prayer those are the, the basics uh, in the same way when it comes to, uh, you know, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I ha I, you know God's blessed me with my children, um, but I just, I don't, know what I, I don't know what to do to make them grow. You say, well, you feed them. And you feed them every day. And they'll grow. That's what you have to do, just feed them. Obviously, don't feed them Twinkies every day. Uh, you want to give them good food. But the idea is, is that you, you're faithful in the simple, basic things of life. And that's the result. So when it comes to um, you and I making sure that we remain faithful to God and that we're not um, pulled away by heresy, it really is the basic things uh, that we just do on a regular basis uh, that enables us to resist. 
So Paul, so Paul here says that he thanks the Lord uh, for them. Uh, you notice he doesn't say if we pray. He says when we pray. So we know that he prayed for them. We don't know how often. That doesn't matter. We just know that he prayed for them. And again, he says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So that then means that uh, their witness in the world was, was well known. People spoke of it. And what was associated with that very tightly was the way that they treated each other as believers. They, were, they would have been a, a tight-knit society, a tight-knit group. And there was a genuine love they had for each other. You'll see that brought up. You know, when you read through the book of Matthew, Christ talks about um, believers loving each other and the world actually knowing and believing that God sent the Son because of how we love each other. So that relationship we have with each other is really very important. Um, it's kind of like this. So if you read through history, uh, and if you read especially the history of the Jews, you, you'll, you, you will come across this idea that is presented in almost every single history of the Jews, whether it's uh, looking at them from the very beginning or maybe just a contemporary history. And that is that, and maybe it's because of persecution, but it's more than that, that the Jews normally would stick together, you know, when they move to other countries or when they're in other countries, you know, just like you have a Chinatown and different places, you know, there's a place where the Jews kind of stay together. They do so for several reasons. The main one is religion. Now, now that kind of bleeds over just their culture because nowadays you have many Jews that are atheistic, but they still follow a lot of the traditions uh, that they have. But the idea then is that, you know, because on the Sabbath day they walk places because of how they worship, because of the kinds of things they have to eat, because of how they conduct business, and then also because of persecution, they would stand to stick together so they can help each other out. Uh, and so that, so this, so the Jewish community stands out in that way. So it should be the same way then with Christians. That's the idea that uh, should be present, is that the way that we stick together, the way that we help each other. Um, I think I've showed you before that, that this has happened now three times where I've been stopped at a hospital uh, by a nurse who, who will say, aren't you the pastor of Ferguson? And I'll go, yes. And they'll say, can you please tell your people to stop coming and visiting so-and-so, whoever that is. There's, he, doesn't, he, he or she, they can't rest. There's too many people. Um, now, <laughs> and one time, one time I just said this. I, I was just kind of talking, and I said, I'm, just, I'm sure you say that to all the pastors. She goes, no, you're the first. <laughs> you know? And she said, uh, but, but that's a, to me, that's a great testimony that all these people are coming in because we care about each other and want to see how an individual is doing. Of course, now, the way it is, you can hardly go in the hospital at all, you, even if it's your own spouse. But, um, but that's happened before. I've heard people talk about, or, or usually it's family members when they, when they become associated with our church in this way. So someone uh, is living in another city, and let's say their parents live here, and their parents are part of the church. Something goes wrong, and we're either bringing food or doing things to help them out, and their kids are blown away. And they'll, and they'll say things like, man, I wish our church did stuff like that. Um, and I think a lot, there's a lot of things we do kind of naturally, but, you know, the help is there. Um, and it's not just food. It may be maybe we have to go clean the yard, if we have to go clean the house, or, you know, help, you know, individuals who volunteer to take somebody to the doctor, kind of depending on the situation. I mean, there's all that kind of stuff that goes on. Um, and so, and that's, that would be the norm. Uh, there's been times I've gone to go to visit a widow uh, and ask if there's anything we can do, anything they need. And more than once, what's happened is they'll say, well, it's already being taken care of. And they'll say, so-and-so came by the other day, and, you know, he changed my light bulbs. And someone else was here Saturday, and they mowed my yard. So, I, you know, no one says anything, but I start hearing about different people in the church who were already checking up on that person and doing things for them, which I think is fantastic. You know, that's great that that kind of thing takes place. Uh, and that's the way that it's supposed to be. Um, so that's what Paul is talking about here when he says he's heard of their faith. And then, of course, he emphasizes this idea of the love that they have for all the saints, meaning the love they have for other believers. But then again, he explains why. He says, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So it's just another way of saying because you are true believers, because you know this is not your final home. Because of this change in your life, you know, you have this hope for heaven, so you do these things, whether it's sacrificially or whatnot. 
That's the idea. That's what drives them. So he's not saying it's because you're, Paul's not writing and saying, you folks are so great. There was no one else like you folks. I wish more people in the world were like you. You have great personalities. That's not what he's doing. He's not buttering them up, saying how great they are. He's recognizing that they are doing these things that are praiseworthy, but it's because of Christ. It's because of where their hope is. Um, and, and I do think, I do think this is important. We, we want to try to learn to respond when people say things to us in a way that would be different. Um, so when people say, um, like, you know, I've, I've had people say to me, uh, well, I've heard your church does this, this, and this. And I go, I go yeah, I say, and I'll say it this way. I say, well, you know, we have a lot of people who really love the Lord. I don't say, oh, yeah, we have a special program, or, yeah, I put together this very detailed uh, graph, and we've got it all. I'm not doing any of that. All right? That's not the point, even if we did do that, which we don't have. But the idea is, is no, we do this because of Christ. This is what Christians do. Um, sometimes people, like, you know, I've helped a few people just throughout the years in just different situations like we all do. And so we'll say, I thank, just thank you so much. I, I can't believe you did that. You know, and I, and I will say, well, I, I mean, I am a Christian. <laughs> and I say it that way on purpose because sometimes people have said, well, I, I've known Christians and they didn't. I say, well, I, I don't know who they are. I go, that's, well, that's too bad. But this is what Christians are supposed to do. That's it. You just leave it there. Well, in general, we can say this. Whenever any church fails in any area, normally, it's because a, it, can, it can be one of the following or a combination. It can be a lack of what I would call proper Bible teaching. You know, sometimes uh, pastors think that their job is to inspire people. It's not, it's not my job is not to inspire you. My job is to teach the scripture. If you're inspired, terrific. But it's to instruct believers in the scripture. Um, I want people to be motivated to do right, but I don't want the motivation to come from me or from an exciting story I tell. I want them to be motivated by the spirit of God. So that can be part of it. It could be just a lack of doctrinal teaching. Some people don't make that connection. That um, if you teach sound doctrine, that is how we grow as Christians. Um, but if sound doctrine isn't being taught, then Christians don't grow. If they don't grow, they don't mature. They don't, they don't do that. Um, so, uh, and then there's others, other, other, people have other views of the church, you know, like whether it's just a group that gets together, the pastor may be failing in a lot of different ways because the pastor may think it's about him. Um, there's just a lot of different reasons why that, that can take place. Uh, but normally in the end, the basic reason is because the church has drifted away from what the scripture says. Because that really is what it's about. In the, you know, so if, if, I, if, I'm, if I end up helping Justin with something, I am doing it because the Bible commands it. But also, I'm also doing it because I want to. But the reason why I want to is because the Bible has is is been used by God to change my heart. Because I don't know if I'll be that way naturally. I mean, I may be that way naturally with my kids. But I may not be that way naturally with Justin. Not that he's a bad guy, but I might say, well, you know, I'm busy. Right? But, but I'm a Christian. And so my, my heart is changing as I'm exposed to sound doctrine. And so my desires change. So then, I, so when I help Justin, I don't say, so if Justin says, thank you, Pastor Bob, for helping me, I don't say, well, I kind of have to. You know, I'm a Christian. You know, I don't do that. Go, oh, no, it's my pleasure. It is. You know, I'm glad I could be of assistance. You know, it's not because I'm, and I don't say, yeah, well, you know, I'm working hard, trying to be great. You know, I'm not doing that either. The idea is that it really is motivated from God and what the Word of God says. So that's kind of, so churches, then as we grow, um, churches should become that more and more through the years. Because you're always going to have within the church new believers and those who have been believers for a while. So people are going to be at different stages of growth and maturity. That's normal. But the longer that a church is under sound, solid teaching, the more of those types of things would just take place really spontaneously. We never do it perfectly, all right? Sometimes we, you know, whatever. We get lost in the weeds. But that becomes more the norm. And there are, there's actually probably quite a few churches doing that. We just have to remember that often, churches that are doing it right, they're not out there bragging about themselves. You know, you do have sometimes churches bragging about the things they do. Well, whatever. I'm just, we're not going to do that. But 
there are many churches that are doing it the right way and maybe doing tremendous things, but they're not advertising it. And they, I don't think that they should. Uh, maybe within certain circles, as we, you know, sometimes pastors get together, we want to know, we, we hear that there, maybe there's a particular ministry somewhere, and we want to know, hey, that, that sounds really cool. How did you guys get that set up? You know, how, do you, how did you figure out this or that? So we, we gather or we share information that way, and that's good. But we're not on a campaign where we're advertising, like, we're, you know, we're not running TV ads and billboards and all the rest. Uh, so sometimes there can actually be a lot of churches that are doing things the right way, uh, but we just don't hear about it, and, you know, and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, in the churches, they have born again believers, and the Spirit dwells in them. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they will bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Sure, they will. Absolutely. That's why I said that if they're exposed to sound doctrine, that's what the Spirit of God uses to help those individuals to mature and grow, and our hearts change, and we do those things. Some of us are more prone to do them earlier than others, but nonetheless, you know, we're moving and growing in that direction. And then, of course, you have those who have, you know, we all have a spiritual gift, and, and we begin to exercise those gifts because the purpose of the gifts is to minister to the body. And so, you know, whether it's the gift of giving or mercy or whatever it happens to be, uh, even administration, it, you know, there's a lot of ways. That's not just about the church running efficiently. It's about being able to help others to get along in life and, you know, be successful or flourish as a Christian. Um, so we just don't want to overlook that, you know, even though it's just a really short little phrase in a sentence that Paul uses, it really is packed with a lot of um, information behind it as to what's going on. So again, he says, as I go on in uh, verse uh, five, you have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. So he immediately connects them with all believers in the world and connects the good things that are going on, this hope that's reserved for them in heaven, he connects it to the message of truth, which is the gospel. So again, you see the emphasized over and over again throughout the scripture that the gospel is truth, um, that it's true. You, uh, I don't know if you, if you are aware of this, but if you think about other religions, a lot of religions don't always emphasize truth. Now, sometimes they will say what they have is true. They don't always get into the idea that what they have is truth in the sense that it can be verified. Now, I know in Buddhism they talk about maybe the way, and sometimes they may use the word truth, but they they don't like to use that too much because the moment you start saying something is true, then you start bringing in logic, evidence, and all the rest. Christianity is unique in that. We've always stressed that aspect of it. And again, remember that when it comes to the gospel, you know, when we proclaim the truthfulness of the gospel, it's not only that Jesus died for our sin. It's that Jesus was a real man in history who lived in a particular place at a particular time, who really was there and really did teach and really did perform miracles he really was beaten. He really did die. Um, he was buried. He was raised again. We understand the theological aspect of that, but it's based on the historical fact of what took place. Uh, if you read, if you were not, I'm not saying you should, but if you ever read the Quran, you're not going to find history in the Quran. It's not in there. It's a big book. There's no history because nothing in there is connected to history. Um, so it makes it very difficult to verify, in one sense, to think about it in terms of uh, what is true and what is not. You just have all these disconnected things. Um, and a lot of other religions, when you read their main books, you don't have the connection with history uh, like the Bible does. And so a lot of individuals who even, even non-believers, non-believing academics, will talk about the uniqueness of the Bible. And one of the things that's very unique about the Bible is not the claims about Christ, because other books make claims about their leaders as well. What makes it unique and different is how it's rooted in history, and these things can be verified. And so that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, it's a huge difference. It kind of uh, grounds everything um, so that we can kind of, you know, we can kind of grasp it, we can feel it, so to speak. Um, and that really is very important. And so. That's why oftentimes in discussions with people, 
um, who are advocates of, other, of their religion or other religions, they normally do not want to get into any kind of discussion about truth or history um, because it's not going to bode well for them. Yeah, John Well, the Bible is the only one, too, that, we made, that has a religion based on prophecy that's available for everything Correct. Else, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. It's basically the life of a man retold in a certain way of what mm -hmm. he said. Yeah. And to see the history and to see the prophecy is fulfilled in history. Again, it's always, you know, it's always that. Um, you know, when, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's more than just a nice little town. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier that that's exactly what would happen. And you know, there's people, and you can get, you can go on the internet and find it real quick. There's a list uh, of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled um, on earth from the Old Testament. And again, the mathematical probabilities of one man being able to match up and fulfill 10 of them is astronomical, much less all of them. I mean, it's just, it's insane uh, what it is. Most individuals, though, just ignore that. It's, you know, we've, you heard me use this phrase a lot, that a lot of people are, uh, they're either one of two things. A, many people are just ignorant. Doesn't mean they're stupid. They're just ignorant of the facts. They just don't, they don't know. They, they don't know all those things. But then there are those who may have come across them and they're intellectually dishonest. They just ignore them. They don't want to deal with them. They don't want to think about them. Uh, because they know what it means and they don't want to deal with that. Remember, once again, we've, as we've talked about before, is that when it comes to a lack of belief in Scripture, a lack of belief in the Gospel, and a lack of belief in Jesus Christ, it's never because there's a, a lacking of evidence. It's never that. It's always because they don't want to. Uh, now, yes, it's true, they're blinded by their sin, but the component in there is there is nothing missing uh, that a person needs to have enough evidence to believe the truth about Christ. It's all, they just, we're dishonest with ourselves, we're dishonest with others. Um, and that is the number one and number two and number three and probably number four reason why people uh, refuse to consider, acknowledge, or believe in the gospel. Um, and, and so that, that really... Um, I think that should be enlightening to us as we pray for people. Um, and, and uh, you know, we ask God to open their eyes to um, honestly deal with the evidence if that's the situation. You know, take the blinders off so they can see the reality of Christ and the fact that they're separated from Christ. Um, but it's never because of, a, you know, I used to think that for a long time that, oh yeah, you get apologetics down, man, you can just prove this to people left and right and they have no choice but to believe. And so you can do that, and you can prove to them uh, left and right that Christ is all those things, and in the end, they don't believe. <laughs> they just, they don't want to believe uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and and uh, so that's why we also pray that God will bless our efforts as we uh, share the Lord with them. So that's what he gets back to here again, that they've heard about the hope which is the message of the truth, it's the gospel, it's just no other way. Everyone is the same way as the gospel, the gospel that came to them, and the gospel bears fruit. Not only with them, the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. There are people everywhere that are coming to Christ. You know, it's amazing to hear how many people come to Christ every day throughout the world, and yet at the same time, the world is basically in major unbelief. There's still great things going on. Um, this is uh, probably 20 years ago now, I think. Yeah, about 20 years ago, at least. The number of Muslims that come to Christ in the Middle East, it's, it's phenomenal. Now, it's a very small number overall compared to the number of Muslims there are. But there's, you know, there are some places where it's two, three, four, five, six, in little towns, seven people every day coming to Christ. Every day coming to Christ. It's phenomenal how that happens. Um, there, are, um, there are many different kinds of ministries uh, and different individual former Muslims that are sharing Christ uh, with others. And there's obviously this great risk. You, know, you can be killed uh, for your faith and it's not considered murder. Um, you know, there's just all kinds of things that are going on. There's been mass killings. Um, in fact, there is, I, I was reading through this history book uh, by Rodney Stark, and he, and he was going through the different reasons why Christianity exploded in Europe. Uh, but not in, in North Africa, because that's where it went first. 
But what he ends up proving is that it did explode in North Africa first. And there's a thing called genocide. And Christians were just killed by the thousands through the years, in, in those early years, by mostly the, by Muslims. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, I think this is pre-COVID, so this is 2018, maybe 2017. There was a, there was a town in, it was, I think it was a town in Afghanistan, but I'm not sure. But I do know it's in the Middle East. It was a town, it's a very old town. It was considered kind of, mostly everybody there was, was actually Christian. Been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had a church building that was 600 years old, and the, the, uh, the Taliban came in, and basically that village doesn't exist anymore. They killed everyone. Every single man, every single woman, I think a few kids survived. They were taken off, you know. They either married off the girls or did whatever they did. But the whole town is gone. You know, the town is there, the, the buildings, but the people are gone. They killed them all. And that was a common thing uh, early on in the early development of Christianity, you know, like, you know, 100 AD, 200 AD, that kind of thing. Um, so the explosion of Christianity in Europe uh, was not that it was unique and maybe better than North Africa. It's just they didn't have the killings um, that they had there. And so it was just kind of interesting to see how Christianity spread through the years and then, and, and then you know, what, how, how things have happened through time uh, with all of that. Um, so anyway, that, uh, that is what they are facing over there, and, and it's a very common thing. So I think what we'll do is we will stop there in verse 6. And we will, uh, well, verse 7, we already mentioned Epaphras. He, he was a fellow slave, meaning when he says fellow slave, that means a fellow slave or servant of Christ. Um, he's a faithful servant of the Messiah, which the Christian Standard Version uses Messiah when it speaks of Christ. Um, and, uh, and of course, Epaphras was the one that told them about their love their spiritual love, their love for the brethren, their love for Christ and the Spirit. So we will pick it up uh, in verse 9 next week when we get together and begin to go through Paul's uh, ongoing prayer for them uh, as, a, as a group of believers. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful again for your kindness to us and again for the book of Colossians. We ask, Lord, again that you will instruct us in, in your ways as we work our way through the book. We pray, Lord, that our minds will uh, be centered and focused on you and those things that you would have us to do. Again, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged. Father, we ask that you would dismiss us with your grace, that you would continue to use us as you see fit throughout the week. As always, we do thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.